My name is John Gray, show producer here at the Hammer Factor, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. This is our 40th episode of the Hammer Factor. I'd like to introduce our co-host of this Whitewater show, co-founder of Immersion Research, Whitewater legend and SUP enthusiast, John Weld. As well, I would like to introduce policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, North Fork champion and president of the Ryan Zeke fan club, Lewis Geltman. We're back, 2018, fellas. Right. Howdy. We're back. I think this is the second time that we've announced the commencement of season two. Yes. I think I we would... started season two in September or something, but that's all right. Let's not get caught up in that sort of details. Yeah, I I remember that, but, I, you know, this is kind of second year. We kind of had that one overlap year there. A few I feel like the last episode of 2017 was so poor, was such a poor effort that it was a catalyst of sorts. Yeah. I, I think you may be right. I mean, I was impressed we got emails from people being like, you guys should keep going after that. And that <laughs> yeah. the response wasn't like, yeah, you know, I think you guys have had a good run. We did. We did <laughs> get one that I think called it, called it as it, as, as it was. And we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> I wasn't sure when we bought, we, when we brought Max Blackburn on, if it saved the show or it just totally put it in a different category. That one was crazy. If you haven't listened to that one, don't don't, don't go back to it. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Should uh, should we move into uh, a little Lewis Geltman make our day programming? Lewis, do you have something prepared to share with us today? No, I don't. I don't have anything. You guys gave me five minutes notice that we were doing this podcast. <laughs> Wah. Wah. <laughs> And How do you think our guests feel? <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about the monument stuff? There was a There's a bill that got a hearing on Tuesday. To... No, I want to I want to talk about the drilling and the opening up the hundred million acres of coastline to uh, oil and gas development. Except Go. except Florida. Right. Because you can, yeah, because you can see oil rigs from Mar-a-Lago if they put them out there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, it, it, it's kind of outside of my expertise. I mean, I don't know any more about this than you guys do. You know, we work, we don't really work on ocean issues just because of the, I don't know, it's like not a geography that aligns with our member organization so much. I mean, not to say we wouldn't, but it's not something that's been a big focus of ours. But I've been talking more with those guys at Surfrider, who I think are super, super savvy and, you know, see the world in the same way, kind of, as we do. Yeah, yes, no Surfrider? Mm-hmm. I know by name. Yeah, I mean, they're like AW for surfers, basically, and I think we're pretty interested in doing some more work with those guys, just because, I don't know, I think we see this at World in the same way, and there's probably some room to you know, kind of build a movement around protecting public lands and waters well, in a way face that it, they're probably a lot cooler than we are. <laughs> I don't know, man. We're pretty cool. Don't sell yourself short there, Weld. Mm. Hey, well, I think, I think in a conversation that you and I had, John, recently about the hammer factor and kind of a, the underlying premise for the show, <laughs> it's that, yes, you know what? Whitewater's badass. 
You know, there's no reason to compare it to anything else or be like anything. You know. Well, here's how it started. This is an interesting conversation. I'm glad you brought this up because because Grace and I have these these impromptu hammer factor shows three or four times a week, and we we're discussing. Uh, this got started because we we're talking about Evan Garcia. He's about to have these boats come in. You know, these Waka boats, and he's he's making a go of it in Whitewater. And then you know, a couple episodes ago, we had that guy making Whitewater. He's making whitewater boats, and I had this I had this epiphany that, you know, as an industry, uh, whitewater as an industry, we're kind of led, you know, the, the people who are leading this business are larger companies who really don't care that much about whitewater. I mean, you look at Jackson, you look at Confluence, you look at Johnson, and and uh, who is it now? Big Adventure that runs Legacy. Whitewater just isn't, you know, something they take that seriously. But at the same time, they're the ones that are really – they don't. I mean, from a financial standpoint, it's nothing yeah, to them. You can't say that Jackson Kayaks doesn't take Whitewater seriously. I can, though. I don't know, man. I mean, I think that people are very serious about it. But in terms of crafting our brand, I mean, oh. you know, I mean, they're they're the ones that are like, you know, we need to – we need to, you know, their marketing is being spent on kayak fishing or SUP or recreational kayaking. Um, but my point was is that we need more core whitewater companies to help craft our, our brand. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't want our, our industry to be led entirely by, you know, people whose who's interest in whitewater is, is marginal, you know. Um, anytime I see someone like Evan or someone like this guy making whitewater kayaks, I'm like, yeah, we need more of this, you know. And then what, what, where that went to from there, whether you agree with us or not, is that John and I start talking about what is the brand of whitewater. And Hammer Factor is a way, sort of a celebration of what what whitewater is. And it's not. I mean, I think at least John and I feel that whitewater isn't to us. It's not like a huge drive to get everybody in the country involved. I mean, there is whitewater is a pretty down and dirty, grimy sport. You, you know, at, at some point in whitewater, you have to love rooting around on the rhododendrons in the sleet, kind of scared, cold, hungry, not sure what's going to happen next. You know, uh, not many people want to do that, but at the same time, that's an awesome thing. You know, I mean, I, I think that's, it certainly creates a brotherhood and sisterhood of, you know, participants that that's pretty cool. I think, you know, I agree. Yeah. I remember something Jason Beeks told me one time that really stuck with me is that, and I, I can't give it to you verbatim, but it was the point was that he saw the relative unpopularity of whitewater as like a badge of honor and not a problem with the sport. You know, it's like, yeah. that's exactly <laughs> what our conversation, that. that's exactly what our conversation <laughs> came back to. It's like, this is not a lifestyle per se. Anyone can do it. It's for everybody. Everyone should give it a go. That's not what whitewater is. Whitewater is for a select few people who want an experience that is so out of the ordinary that they can't even explain it to people. You can't even go to work and explain, dude, I was on the little wide at four and a half feet. You wouldn't believe what, you know, no one's going to get that or understand that, you know? So you got to have kind of that, uh, I don't know. You got to be an outlier. And that's what I like. That's why I like meeting all the people and talking about it personally. My, my, my informal motto for Whitewater has been our best vacation is your worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty good one. <laughs> 
You can buy bumper stickers that say that from a climbing company. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I must have I seen it then somewhere. I, I've been saying that sort of offhandedly for years, but oh well. Uh, moving forward, um, show sponsors. Here's on my list of things. Uh, Kaleva. Man, this feels really good, guys. You should feel good about this. We've got some... You know, some interest in Outdoor Alliance and whatever, but we did our first ads, and Kaleva got a really good response from our ads. All kinds of inquiry, inquiries about the trips and whatnot that we're doing. So, you should too. It's it's like I said, it's an amazing opportunity to live like a pro kayaker for a couple of weeks in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and and I have some hot news off that off that Kaleva trip. Actually, I was talking with uh, Alex Markoff this morning. And he let me know that Tom McEwen had to fly home early. I guess he hit his head uh, somewhere in the Alice's sake. He's fine, it, it sounds like, but he cracked his helmet on it. But this is a guy who's in his 70s running, Damn. you know, class five, <laughs> stout class five. God, dude. We got to get him on the show. I, I don't yeah. think I've ever had a word with Tom. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah you, we probably should have Tom McEwen on the, on the show. Yeah, I think Gelman and I are both unsure how that would really play out. Well, explain. That I think on balance, it'd be good. Yeah, I think it would be good. We just have to give it some. I mean, Tom is just such a, a wealth of knowledge that I think we would have yeah. to think about what we want to talk about with Tom and not just have a meandering conversation. But like, yeah, I think if we, we could pick some things out for him, and he's like, I mean, he's he's very modest too. I, yeah. I mean, in a weird way, you, you, we're gonna have to pry stuff out of him. You yeah, I mean? totally. I don't, I don't know. I that intrigues me even more to have him on the show. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, the best analogy I could make would be it'd be like having Reinhold Messner or you know one of the guys who started, you know, the founders of modern surfing or something like that on, on a on the show. I mean, it's he's that important, I think, to the to the sport. Killer. Anyway, anyway, back to what I was saying. Um, we are. We're, if you if you want to advertise on the Hammer Factor, now's the time to to get it done because you know there's only so much inventory, and <laughs> <laughs> we're filling up. <laughs> I mean, there's only there's only there's only so many shows that are going to come out, so now's the time. It's going to gonna be. You should think it over carefully because it's going to be like one of those Groupon scenarios where all of a sudden you're. <laughs> you're flooded with like hundred thousand orders that you're unprepared to fill. <laughs> right, speak it over carefully. Yeah. Now we do have. Make some... sure you have the infrastructure. You have the back, the backbone already <laughs> in place for the for the volume. We do have some cool sponsorships coming in this year, so, so... You're, you're going to want some tax. You're going to do some tax planning, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, should we move on to some viewer mail before before we fall off the rails again? What do you guys think? Let's get the hate mail right off the bat because we got some we, we got some good hate mail this week. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the first one here. This comes from uh, Brian Richard. So we yeah. love our listener mail. I mean, I I don't know about you guys, but I love hearing these comments and whatnot. And a lot of times they take me, you know, a little bit a little bit off guard. But here we go, Brian Richard. Love the show. Do you guys do you guys ever listen? Do you guys ever listen to Tony Kornheiser? Why? Does he work for uh, Dagger? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. I won't dignify it with a response. <laughs> Didn't he? Does he paddle an RPM? I've seen that guy. 
<laughs> yes, like that want, Rifle like Heads a... helmet on the upper yacht and an RP helmet. I know exactly what you're talking I want, about. I want like an intro song for Mr. Mail, like Kornheiser has, you know? Okay, okay, I'm putting that like on the, the list right now. Like the That's Tony the Mail. B guy. Like Kornheiser's <laughs> the beat man on the upper yacht. He has the beat helmet, the beat boat. <laughs> Not Maybe to be confused get... with shark guy on the upper yacht. I wonder if we could get the shark boat. Yeah. We need to get Rush on this. We need to have some sort of like camera factor mailbag freestyle to intro this segment with. All right, I'm on it, Lewis. Your wish is my command. Especially if you get me that meeting in DC. Yeah. <laughs> Hammer factor mailbag. I love it. Um <laughs> so Brian Richards says, love the show. Period. New line. Mm. I love the way Period. he wrote this. Full stop. <laughs> Full stop. Right. Hit return. Let's get to the point. Will Weld, please stop cutting speakers Grace, off. Can I can I stop you for a second? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to do that. Finish. <laughs> <laughs> Will Weld, please stop cutting speakers off and talking over them. Weld is a valuable part of the show, yes, but would love to hear others' comments. Perhaps he would listen to the shows to hear what I'm speaking of. I'm just going to pass okay, that one I, right over to you, Mr. Weld. Can I respond? Yes. First of all, I'm hold not going to listen hold to up, the old... Hold up, hold up, hold up. No, wait, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm not going to listen to the old shows. That's <laughs> final. I have no interest in hearing <laughs> any more of myself or you two uh, other than here. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is he's absolutely right, and I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, I run my own business, right? Which means probably I'm unemployable due to my stubborn, bullheaded attitude anyway. And and that is that's very true about me. I am completely unemployable because I cannot listen to anybody for any reason about anything, <laughs> especially someone telling me what to do and when to do it. That's A. B, when you've been self-employed <laughs> for as long as I have, I've never had a job. I've never had a job. <laughs> I've made it this far and I don't intend to change. You basically get paid. Pe people get paid to listen to you bloviate. And <laughs> you get used to that arrangement. And that's what I do. I bloviate. I come into the office and I spout and people sit there and they roll their eyes, but they know not to cut me off because it'll go quicker if they don't say anything. <laughs> and uh, that's what people who are self-employed do. And so Brian's correct. He's, he's absolutely right. And I want to apologize to Brian and everyone else and to you two. Well, <laughs> I, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we're talking through a Skype connection. A lot of times it's hard, you know, the, the, the digital, you know, there's digital delay in there and whatnot. But you know what? You talk over me all the time, so I'm, I'm fine with that. I guess I'm just used to it. I guess Lewis and I are just used to it. So, Yeah. Yeah. That's not, it's, it's not the Skype thing. John, it's just I know more than you. <laughs> Understood. We'll leave it at that. I don't know. I feel like if you listen to any sports talk radio show or like any of those obnoxious political banter shows on television, you're going to get the, the same damn thing, you know? <laughs> it's just inherent in the format. <laughs> it's not this American life. <laughs> right. Are you? <laughs> Well, yeah, I'd like I'd like to you know while I did apologize, I'd like to say that I would I'm going to stop doing it and I'd listen to the show and really take heed to how it sounds. I'm not that's probably not going to happen. So, so that was, that was an insincere apology. No, 
it was sincere, but it's I don't see it stopping. There's I mean, not, it's sort of out of my control at this point. There's not going to be <laughs> there's not going to be a change of action at this point. No. All right. Well, moving on. Thanks for that, Brian. Um, this comes from Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn took time from his busy legal schedule to write us. What was this? The last show? BS? Question mark. You guys can't be serious, right? No, no. Let's get this right. He said, "Was this last show BS?" Yes. Was this last show BS? You guys can't be serious, right? Now I don't know oh, if that's serious. Me- I don't know if that means. Was it BS we were talking about the last show? Or was he like, this show is so bad. <laughs> what do you think he's it's getting the at there? <laughs> anyway, we'll have to clean it up. Sorry about that, Mike. Um, all right, here's one for Lewis. This is, this is kind of directed towards uh, Mr. Geltman. This is from yep. Kirk, Kirk Edelman. Kirk Edelman lives over in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's also a published uh, writer. Yes. He's written those two guidebooks on Appalachian. Before before we go any further with this email, I just want everyone listening to note that the address on this email is Knoxville, Tennessee. But proceed. Yes, this is this is by uh, this is written by the guy who actually wrote the guidebook. So for the southeast, I've got a message. For, <laughs> I've, I've got a message for Mister. You should you should you should call it the shithole southeast while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a message for Mr. Will. First of all, he shouldn't listen to Lewis about Middle Kings. And I do think that Mr. Geltman's opinion of the Kings seriously stains any credibility he has on other topics of discussion on the Hammer Factor. His explanation of the facts surrounding the fragmentation of our national monuments was so spot on, but his confusion about the quality of the Middle Kings is puzzling indeed. So, Weld, we are going to the Kings this summer, and you are welcome to join us. It's a manky, low-quality run, but consider yourself invited. <laughs> right. <laughs> Secondly, I've been hearing about a kid's camp that John's been involved in in the Yawk area and would love to uh, know more about it. Can Weld explain how we can get our kids involved? My son is totally lower Yawk ready, and I'd love to get him hooked up with the program up there. Kind of a two-part question here. Let's go with Lewis first. Ha- I mean, you know what, Lewis, you don't need to say anything. John and I can discuss this. Hmm. Thank you. You haven't been to the Middle Kings, but I'm going to say that is a that is kind of like a there is more granite slides that drop more vertical feet on the Middle Fork of the Kings than there are in the entire section of the Little White River. I don't care about slides. I like paddling when I can get my whole blade in the water. I like the rocks to be just I don't know. Look, man, I all I can tell you is I went and ran it once, and it was too fucking low, and that was the problem. But I did not come away from that being like that was a classic run and i got to go back i was like that kind of sucked and it was just too low like and i that must be the genesis of my opinion because i know so many voters whose opinions on what what i respect who really like that run a lot but when i went i thought it was not that great so i'll go back and give it another shake with (sighs) proper flow but all i can tell you is what i saw and i wasn't that into it well a little bit of credibility lost, but you know what? Over time, we can rebuild that. Let's move on. To- <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Kirk makes some pretty quality points here about Lewis's credibility, and I don't know that it can come back at this point. But Well, it's something that we need to watch, you know? We- I mean, I just think that the yeah. point of note is right. that Southeastern paddlers love the Middle Kings. But you think there's a correlation so, there? Where there's water, you know, if you come from an area where you're accustomed to having proper flow in the river and you know, push, nice deep water. 
You know, lose a little bit of its luster. This is the most retarded narrative in all of Whitewater <laughs> that I'm hearing. Like this is this this narrative. Mm-hmm. This like anyway, we'll get back to that. We got to stick on point here. Mm-hmm. Kids kayaking. I'm a little disgusted at this point. Go ahead, Weld. Kids kayaking. Uh, they go. They go to right. rock. They slide down rocks. Blah blah blah. That's right. Listen. Right. We have, have, you ever we have a very poor quality manky run up here called the Lower Yacht, which yeah, is exactly. If you have nothing else to learn, how to, you know nowhere else to go to learn how to kayak, it will do in a pinch. I mean, it's not Outlet Falls or whatever we're doing out west. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If the whole rest of the country is completely dry, you can try the Lower Yacht. You know, listen, you guys. I know we'd like to learn the guys, uh, Someday, you guys come out someday, and get out of your, your whitewater huts. There's no, there's no going back to the shithole that you came from. You know, right. so. <laughs> Kirk, you can send your kids with Lewis, and they'll go right to the Stikini for the first few days on the on the river. <laughs> but all right, what I really want to get together, to make a long story short, is an IR kids development team where uh, we have a couple camps over the course of the summer. Kids can come out, but. Um, it, it that that's a long short of it. So and I, I think there'd be some whitewater aspects to it, and I think Kara would love to have some sort of racing slalom aspects to it as well. Uh, but more to come on that. But more specifically, where can where can uh, uh, Kirk find more information about this? Like where where does where does our listener figure out what's going on with your kids' plan? Because it is really cool. I made a little video on it a couple years back, I think. Yeah, I mean it started with the Hillikes coming out, you know, Tommy's kids coming out and paddling with us, and then we added a couple of kids this year. Uh, a friend of mine, Forrest Noble, sent his kid out, uh, and it started from there. And uh, I just feel like uh, IR has, you know, could really contribute to this. So um, I don't know. I, where can you find out? I think you know our website, our usual social media, certainly our Facebook will, page will have information on it. Um, but that's our goal: is to get is to get a van, get some boats, and have these summer camps. Basically, is this an IR? It's going to be an IR thing. I mean, we care about just doing this with our friends, but I'm starting to see real value. I mean, obviously from a marketing standpoint, I mean, having a group of kids out kayaking and involved and uh, from a marketing standpoint, it's great. But also, it just strikes me as the right thing to do, you know. Okay. Very so, cool. Anyway. Yep. There you go, Kirk. Follow uh, IR on the um, interwebs and show them that little video. Send him that little video. I'll send him that video. For a while back, you can see what it's all about. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. All right, so we got it through the hater mail. Um, this one comes from Jared Bean. Love the podcast. I much enjoy the personalities, information, and opinions. Thank you for taking the time to put it on. Please continue in 2018. Thank you, Jared. Owen Callahan writes in, I'd listen to you guys reading old, old copies of AW that you pick up off the bathroom floor. <laughs> and I actually have an old copy of AW here. <laughs> Can we can we get a few verses? <laughs> well, it's old. It is old. I can date this a little bit. For one thing, I see they have upper yacht race results here, and I see it looks like I was fifth this year. Nice. <laughs> Which is not my best finish, that's for sure. But here, well, between the ads for War Bonds and Victory Gardens, <laughs> it looks like there's a full page ad for Chesterfield cigarettes, the paddler's choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, boy, these boats here are very long. Let's put it that way: salamander paddle bags. Uh, mount, uh, an ad for mountain surf. Wow. 
Do you have a date on the lighting front of that? paddles? Remember lighting paddles? Are they still around? Wave Sport uh, as a separate company. Wasn't Lee Bong Figlio a part of that? That's right. One time, yeah. That's right. It's uh, yeah. Well, moving on, and this is something yeah. that uh, here we are reading, reading Mohawk canoes. <laughs> here we are reading American Whitewater from 1946. Is there anything in there about paddle offset? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the paddles are longer. There's no question about that. As as are the boats. Um, this, these may actually be worth discussing. All right, Todd Boiter. Todd Boiter yeah. um, writes in on the last show. Grayson Well disagreed on the ideas of a single rotal molding company molding different brands of kayaks and being profitable. Yeah. I agree with you, Grace, as I own a custom injection molding company in North Carolina that molds for numerous different companies, including all the major kayak brands. I'm right. You're wrong. I think we can probably no, move on. And this is a point, this is a point that we need to we need to take up again. He's talking about making components for kayaking companies, not the actual boat. I think the finances fall apart when you get to the actual boat. Well, this is hard evidence that you don't have to make your own stuff; that you can have someone else make it and 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 sell it. We don't know anything about this guy and his business. You could be uh, you be flat broke or. Uh, trust Safari, like everyone else down in North Carolina. Oh my God! <laughs> um, this comes in as from I'm right on that, and 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 time in the future will prove me correct. So I don't know. I'm not really worried about okay. that one. I don't know how, with zero experience running any kind of business, you would be able to say that. What on earth are you even talking about? Well, you just said you've never had a job. Like basically, your opinion means nothing. <laughs> Your 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 scope of experience in the real world is nil. It doesn't even right, touche. exist. Touche, Mr. Grace. Um, Adam Crawford throws a soft pitch to Geltman. Yes. Adam Crawford, good buddy of mine, puts on a great race on the Embudo River. You guys ever ran the Embudo? No. Too manky. I never have. Lewis. I always wanted to go. I heard it was really good. Don't go, Lewis. It's too manky. If you Listen, think the- dude. <laughs> I'm prepared to give Middle Kings another shake. I've, all I can tell you is what I know. Adam <laughs> says, what is the general consensus on modern-day kayak outfitting? I like this one. I tend to take all of it out and then make my own, shaping up foam hip pads and just thin foam pad on the seat. Maybe a pleasure pod. I could just be reliving the old days when that was the norm, but I really don't like most manufacturers' outfitting. Dagger is about the only one that I'll keep in a boat. How about everyone else? Just throw this one to Lewis. I'm like 100% on the same page. <clears throat> I rip all of it out. I think the only boat I have that has its original outfitting in it is my green boat. But it's only because that stupid ratcheting seat in the front makes it really hard to rip everything out and outfit it myself, which is what I really want to do. And I really want to find somebody with like the old green boat and trade out the new style seat for the old style seat and then outfit it myself. It's like anything other than foam is just adding weight and complexity to something that you can do a lot better yourself with, you know, a piece of you know some mini cell and some dragon skin and some so to get this forty five minutes of your time. So I understand what you're saying. You take out the plastics, everything, the plastic seat, the seat towel. No, 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 no. I leave the seat for sure. I just mean like I don't want like the like carpeting that's in those liquid logic boats. I don't want like I want like the minimum. Uh, I leave the back band, but I'm always trying. Like I strip off all the extraneous stuff and just to recover it with mini cell. How about knee pads? Try and pull it down to the bottom of the boat. 
Um, you can just with the original. So I'm not really doing anything other than, you know, padding out the seat in a normal way. But what about you, John? Me, I, I'm terrible with this. I will literally sit. I will get the boat. And in many cases, I won't even adjust the foot braces. I'll just sit in it and paddle. That's the Valley Mill way. <laughs> I, I got corrupted yeah. by stone racing. Yeah, that is that is the Valley Mill way. And I've always been like that. Like I don't even, I could care less. I feel although, like although I have to say, in the past few years, I've gotten, I've gone as far as to put head pads in. Like they come with like the little shims you can put in there. I've been known to put shims in boats recently. I feel like anything other than having outfitted the boat that I myself in the way that I want, it's like going skiing with like ski boots that are four sizes too big. It's like, it feels awful and I hate it. <laughs> I love the passion. If you could see Lewis's <laughs> face when he talks about this, it's great. I do. I mean, I think, you know, from a business standpoint, I mean, I think that there is an opportunity here to do something else because that is a complaint I hear all the time for sure from customers. That it's too complex and just too heavy and it's just never right. The thing about it is no, like no one's ever happy with their outfitting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And especially if you're Kara size, it's it's completely unacceptable. The thing about the outfitting now is like, you know, like if you want to borrow a boat or like if you're a kayak school, it's like way, way, way better than you know, twenty years ago. But if it's like if you own the boat and you take the time to outfit it yourself, I'd rather have it the old way. But like if you're just borrowing a boat, like the new outfitting is way, way better. You know, like you can make it paddleable in like three minutes. That's a really but like good to point. get it to get it the way you want, you're just ripping all the stuff out and putting it all back in. That's a really good point. Uh, final listener email of the show today. This comes from Lee Doherty, uh, coming in from Ireland. I uh, love the show, guys. Wondering, have yuns the balls to discuss why there are no black professional kayakers sponsored by any of the major kayak brands? Love listening here from Ireland. Some European segments to the rest of the world would be great to add to. Uh, who wants to take this one? I'll take I'll, I'll take the crack of the first part. All right. Uh, well, it's simple. The major kayak brands are all racist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving I don't on. Think there's, I don't think there's anything else to it than that. Well, I will say we had uh, a couple um, black green racers this year, so I don't know if they're exactly professional, but uh, um, that's something to say. I think all outdoor sports um, just more like it's a culture thing. I don't think it's anything past that. You know, I... it's a problem. It's like you know, like the United States is going to be what do they say? Like majority minority in like very, very soon. And if there's this massive segment of the population that feels like, you know, getting rad on public lands is not, you know, not something that, um, it's not a culture that they're welcome in. It's like, that's, that's a problem. You know, it's like, we need to have, I don't know, we need to be welcoming to everybody. And we also need all those people to feel invested in protecting public lands. Right. It's like, if you have, no connection to national forests and rivers. You know, you're not going to be an advocate for those places. So, never mind that. I needed to buy dry suits. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but that's a good point, Lewis. It's like, how do you get that urban culture to experience what's outside of the city limits? That's a really good point. 
And there's some, I mean, there's some good organizations out there that are focused on, you know, helping, you know, people in minority communities or communities that are sort of historically less involved in these sports or these activities, you know, get involved. Like, I don't know, Outdoor Afro is a cool organization and Green Latinos. There's a group called Echo, which is like Hispanics enjoying camping and hunting outdoors, I think. But there's a handful of organizations that are, you know, focused on kind of increasing participation and, you know, outdoor activities. And I think that's good. It's important. Do you know if these are relatively new organizations or they've been around for a while? I think they're relatively new. I'm going to, I'll find those and put them in the show notes. That's really cool. Um, part two. And listen, viewers, you know, there's not going to be many topics that we don't have the balls to cover here on the Hour Factor. I mean, we blew the lid off of the paddle offset topic. <laughs> <laughs> there was no one out there willing to touch that until we came along. You're like the, the HL Mencken of paddle offset. Right. Um, <laughs> second part of this question, get some Euro- European segments. We were just talking about that before we started recording. Absolutely. That's going to yes. happen. We need a European correspondent. If, if any of any of the European listeners out there would like to uh, become the Hammer Factor European correspondent, let us know. If you want to uh, get text messages from John Grace at like three in the morning, being like, "We're recording in like, five minutes." <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You have to be ready anytime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a friend of mine uh, who's not a paddler, I've known for a while. In fact, I've known my life. He wrote in. And for some reason, he listens to the show. I'm not sure why. But uh, he thinks that Hammer Factor Nation is too wordy. Uh, he thinks we should we should be calling our listeners out there hammerheads. I'm just to throw that out there. That's it. Uh, okay, thank you for that. <laughs> um, all right, should Sorry, we get our uh, should we get our celebrity guest on here? Our special guest. Who is this guest? Uh, so this is uh, Doctor Philip Prince. Um, this is, Phil is a avid whitewater enthusiast of the canoe variety. Hmm. Um, he is a doctor, and uh, his specialty is geology. Um, and he is here to discuss uh, the rocks under the water and uh, why it's so manky here in the southeast. Right. Um, welcome to the show, Phil Prince. Can you hear us? I can hear you, John Grace. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, did you hear my hey. intro of you, a uh, whitewater enthusiast of the canoe variety, doctor of geology? Ooh. Is there anything that I missed? No, you you are well versed in flattery. That was very nice. That was more more than I expected. <laughs> I heard some about Mankey Southeast too. That was where I joined in. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of a theme of the show. Essentially, okay. Lewis is. Don't go to the southeast ever because it's manky, <laughs> and people in the southeast love the Middle Kings because it is manky as well. So mm. that's kind of where we're Actually, at. Actually, in all seriousness, can I ask a simple question? You can ask a simple question. I need to, to respond to what Gray said before we go too much further here. But. Okay. <laughs> Why do rivers in Colorado suck so bad? Uh, that's Wait, a right question. Get, they are manky. Get, I don't think the southeast is even that manky. It's like I think the southeast, the rivers are actually pretty nicely sculpted to handle an extremely small amount of water. It's the problem. And, isn't and, and I have a second part to that question. You're like lower, lower past you. <laughs> the second part of the question is why does everyone who not kayak 
when they hear that I kayak, ask if I kayak in Colorado. Ooh. <laughs> oh, man, that must okay, be I'll, the... I'll go ahead and, and, and stand back and let you answer that. Thank you. Sure, yeah, so the the point about about the Southeast rivers being able to handle a small amount of water. That, that's a good point. That's, and that's actually something that I would have, that I would have brought up to address, uh, the, the contrast between the Southeast and, and what you would see out West. Um, what you see in, in a river in terms of like what, just what it looks like, what its stream bed looks like, how steep it is, whatever is in some way, always an expression of, of like the geologic history of the area. And, on the one hand, it's the geologic history of what kind of rock is there, but on the other hand, it, it's the process history, which is something that operates over over much shorter scales. Um, the thing about the southeast is you see it today. Um, it's the temperate climate. The summer's hot. The winter's kind of cold. It rains a lot in the winter, whatever. That climatic pattern hadn't always been here. Uh, if you went back maybe several tens of thousands of years longer than that, really any time between about about two and a half million years ago in the present, Southeast would look really different. Um, you know, the summit of Mount Mitchell would have been this completely barren rock pile. Uh, what you see on the Blue Ridge in North Carolina would have been, in terms of what it looked like with vegetation, nobody really knows. I mean, it looked like northern Canada or something like that. And, and the point is that the stream channels as you see them today are used to carrying different amounts of water delivered in a different way than they carry now. And they're also used to receiving a lot more stuff falling in from the riverbanks and the cliff sides than they receive today. All these boulders you see in the green, um, house-sized boulders that are never going to move, they've actually been there long enough that they're starting to get rounded by the water. Uh, those aren't actively falling in anymore, and there was a time in, in, in which they were falling in. So the point is, the way a southeastern river channel is shaped today is related to a different period in Earth's climate history than we're actually living in now. So that's why even when a, a southeast river is really going nuts, I mean, you've got a huge flow in it, you might have bank full with respect to vegetation, but it's not like filling out the whole gorge, you know? So it, it makes really manageable whitewater where you can still have a lot of gradient, but it's it's not a completely sort of committing inescapable experience so it, it it's a really cool example of of seeing rivers as you know an agent that like shapes the landscape but, but the way rivers look means something i mean the the way a river looks in the pacific northwest says something about geologic process and climate there uh, and it's something really different of course than what it than what you see in the southeast what about Colorado? Why can't uh, what about, is it just because there's a, a road and a railroad track on every river out there? Or like, why are they so manky? Is it the people that make the rivers so bad? What is? Come on, guys. There's like three good. Maybe rivers. it's maybe it's the and it's 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 the outdoor sports lifestyle culture, man. I don't know. What's a place to hang out? I mean, you get you get credibility. You show up with some gear on. You show up with, with gear, you've got instant cred, you can get kombucha in the bar or whatever. I don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's a, Colorado is, it's geologically different in terms of the processes that have been shaping it and how recently they've been shaping it. Uh, it's different from the Southeast, it's different from the Pacific Northwest, and the, the climatic history is different as well. I mean, so there are, there are just different 
inputs that go into making that landscape and the rivers that shape it look like they do. Um, something like um, like Yule Creek in Colorado. That's the one that has the real kind of like angular slaty rock. It's got these huge kind of that's every river. <laughs> well, okay, so there you go. Those are, like in the southeast, I mean, you're not going to get gradient like that on rock like that. It ain't going to happen. It's, why is that? I mean, why, uh, is, why does Colorado have that in all seriousness? Um, Colorado has that because the Rockies are a, first of all, a younger mountain range than the Appalachians. And what that means is that the, the Earth's crust there has had energy put into it through plate collision and that that energy is stored as potential energy in big mountains and the thick crust underneath them that holds those mountains up okay when you paddle white water you're, you're paddling stream energy you're paddling stream power uh the more energy you've got in in the landscape and the crust at a given point the more energy that the rivers are going to be sort of bleeding off as they as they flow off of that landscape so Colorado is just a more a more energized landscape in addition to being a, a younger mountain range there's also very, very high flow of heat into the Earth's crust in the western U.S., um, kind of like you got in like in East Africa. You know, the headwaters of the Nile, there's rowdy stuff there. Um, there's a lot of energy going into the Earth's crust there in the form of heat that's, that's rising up underneath the crust and making it kind of swell. So Colorado has essentially a double input of energy. And for that reason, there's so much energy going into the landscape that even soft, crappy rock can still support uh, a steep stream, right? In, in the southeastern U.S., there's not that much of an energy input, and soft rock like that would get worn down smooth. Um, there, it wouldn't be able to support any gradient. So. Because the thing I always hear is like rivers in Colorado just have been blasted because there's railroads and roads next to them. But, yeah. um, but that's true with almost every river everywhere, it seems like. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't seem. No, it, it, it is. And that doesn't that doesn't define. I mean, that doesn't define Colorado whitewater. That's not why those why those streams look like they do. Yeah, that might that might neck them down in places or, you know, add a bunch of really sharp jangly rock or whatever. I mean, it, 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 it might, it might channelize them and ramp them up locally, but it, it's not defining what they look like. And yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, most of the river gorges in the Southeast have at some point had blasting or engineering in, in some parts of them. There's of course exceptions to that, but they're always going to be avenues from low point to high point that people are going to use. Uh, the reason the Rockies in Colorado specifically looks like it does is, is what I told you. I mean, there's there's energy being injected into that landscape. And on top of that, because of its latitude, because of where it is in North America, how far north it is, so much of it was recently glaciated, was covered in ice sheets, that that provides kind of an additional like input and disruption to river systems. So at the end of the day, there's just a lot a lot more that has happened in Colorado to make that a rugged dynamic landscape and we we just don't we don't have it on the east coast there's nowhere that that has anything like that here and for that reason the rivers look really different so compare that to like the high sierras um you're you're looking at a a, a fairly similar scenario in terms of the the energy input idea and the glaciation uh the high sierras are going to going to give you a pretty different rock type or a pretty different suite of rock types there's going to be a lot of 
what's going to get called granite out there. Some of it is true granite from a, and this is, y'all don't even want to get into this. This is like minutia, classic definition based <laughs> geology, but like true granite versus granodiorite out, out there in the Sierras, it's probably granodiorite. As far as you're concerned, it's granite, right? It's, it's hard igneous rock. It falls apart in a certain way. It doesn't look anything like that stuff in Yule Creek, right? And it, it gives a different, a different paddling experience. And that's just because uh, the Sierras are on a different part of the North American continent, and the, the rock-forming history that shaped them is pretty different from the rock-forming and, and sort of rock-stacking and deforming history that shaped Colorado. Now, again, you got a good gradient there because of, of tectonic energy being put in the landscape and the glaciation as well. But why... Yeah, Could you ahead, say why, uh, compared to some of the other, you know, what we would think of as classics in California, the Middle Kings is so manky and <laughs> see. Well, now, now here, 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 I'll get creative because I hadn't been out there. I mean, I can't, I can't draw the comparison, but it, it would depend on. See, he's mad now, and I don't even, I don't even understand why. You know, when you had Colorado going, I could, I could be judgmental and. Everybody understood. Here I'm, here I'm the fish out of water. But night, so much of what you see in terms of like Mankey, in terms of just a big pile of rock in the stream bed, you know, that just depends on on how the rock falls apart, how long the gorge has existed, how long these big steep walls have been present to start falling apart, whether the river can can carry all of the material that falls into it out of the gorge. I mean, there's some rivers in even in really dynamic active places like the the Himalayas or the Andes, they just they couldn't hold a lot of boulder material. It would all be be carried away by the power of the stream. So having having not been there and, and not being able to, to to give you like a first hand account, it is probably a, a combination of the specifics of the rock. If the rock has been sort of like damaged and broken up, um, a lot of the stuff in the Sierra batholiths that, you know, like the stuff around Yosemite or something, where that's that's igneous rock that cooled in the crust. It doesn't really have, a, like, a line preferred orientations that are going to make it fall apart maybe in, in, in smaller chunks or fall apart more easily. Um, you, you could have contrasts like that, but it's, it's, it's going to be place to place to a certain extent. Um, there's, there's a lot of subtle characteristics. And, you know, just... if. If he doesn't like that, if Grace doesn't like that, just let him get mad about it. You know, I mean, you can you can have your opinion. That's, that's it's not Mankey. It's not Mankey, Phil. So that was a setup question. I, well, I you know, I'll take I'll take your word for it. But, you know, in terms of Mankey, this is an East Coast example. But like Bottom Creek versus the Green, right? Those are two two little steep creeks. Um, they're small. They're like they're stream capture streams. So they they sort of have the same white water style but but bottom creek is on rock that it looks like the green like if you looked at a piece of it it wouldn't look that much different but it's sharp and jagged it breaks apart in a very different way it shreds boats someone always breaks a boat on bottom creek and it, it's it's just subtle differences literally in the way the rock falls apart and they're pretty close to each other in the appalachians i mean they're, you know this when you're looking to explain that you have to look at the at the physical materials that are there real quick let me move on here you've talked about stream capture a bunch with me 
Yes. And it's a big driver of whitewater, especially, forgive me if I'm wrong, in like older mountain chains and whatnot. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Real quick, give our listeners what <laughs> is stream capture. Use the green as an example. Use the green. I'll use the green as an example. Okay. This is, let, let me preface by saying this is tough to do with, without pictures while I'm talking about it. I'll do my best. Okay. Um, river basins over time they don't stay the same. It's possible for one river system to quite literally sort of erode its way into its neighbor and start diverting water out of streams in this neighboring basin into this sort of attacking river system, okay, the the capturing basin. So the way landscape evolution works is water runs downhill. Water follows the influence of gravity and goes downhill, Okay. At points during the evolution of a landscape, uh, some river systems will end up following a path to, to the ocean that's not very efficient. For example, if you jumped in the French Broad around Hendersonville, you're going to get to the ocean in New Orleans, Louisiana. Okay. That's kind of a weird thought. You're going to have the planet and how structure works, right? So... The Broad River that flows across the Piedmont of North and South Carolina into the Atlantic has a really nice, easy path to the ocean. Stuff that's up on top of the Blue Ridge around Hendersonville has to go a really crazy long way to get there, and it's about 1,000 feet higher than the Piedmont below it. So those low streams down on the Piedmont quite literally sort of eat their way into the Blue Ridge and if they eat their way far enough in there, they can literally capture and divert elevated rivers that take that long way to the ocean and direct them down off of the plateau to the Piedmont on a, on a faster path out. I mean, it, it's no different than um, you want to drain this area and it's got water on it. You go to the, the edge of this area and like dig a trench in it with a mattock or whatever and the water runs off. That's essentially how stream capture works. It's... Water finding the best way downhill. That's the best way to think about it. Do you know that story about that recent really dramatic change that happened where that river got shifted into the Alsac? Yeah, that that was um is that the is that the glacial glacially yeah. related one? Yes. Where it was was like melting ice or something like that. Is something that something like that? Yeah, so so that's I mean that's that's an example of it in that case. Ice is making that happen, but but in reality, like that's why Canada has a lot of really good white water. Um, the river system layout that you see in Canada today uh, is is trying to get itself reorganized after ice sheets retreated away. Like you know, during the ice ages, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years ago and beyond, all of Canada was covered in ice. When that ice melts away. It's carved up the landscape. Uh, the way the rivers used to flow doesn't work anymore, so they have to get themselves sorted back out, and there's going to be a lot of rapid erosion to make that happen. The stuff you see on, on the shorter term, these smaller examples you know, related to like a glacier melting or something like that, it's the same idea. Uh, I mean, the water now has a better way to go downhill. It's just happening on a shorter term for sort of, I guess what I call an obvious reason, you know? Um, the Mississippi River is the same way. Like the Mississippi does not want to go to New Orleans anymore. It wants to go down the Atchafalaya River and enter the Gulf 
to the west of where it does. The Army Corps of Engineers prevents that from happening with this big control structure and whatever. But it, it's just a fact of the Earth's surface evolving that what's always the best path for water to go downhill isn't always going to be the best path. And rivers will naturally sort of change themselves up and organize to, to make that go better. I guess that was one of the other questions. I think it seems like you're getting there, but I was curious why it seems like we have so few big water classics like in the lower 48 and especially, I mean, there's none really in the East compared right. to like BC or Patagonia or somewhere like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all going to come back. It's all going to come back to the, to the energy inputs thing. Um, for a large volume river to, to sustain a good bit of gradient, it, it's going to have to be having that, that potential energy injected back into it all the time. There's going to need to be uplift of the land surface, or it's going to need to be adjusting itself to some great change in its course that recently happened or something. I mean, in the, in the southeast, you know, a river, like a big river, like, um, I don't know, maybe the, you know, the broad river in North Carolina or into South Carolina, those, those are good-sized streams, but they tend to be pretty shallow and they're low gradient and they have these little shoals in them and stuff like that. That's because there's just not enough energy going into it to keep them steep. Uh, if you went to a place like, you know, like British Columbia or like Patagonia, again, in both of those locations, there's actual uplift of rock. I mean, those are active collision zones where tectonic plates are colliding and that energy is going into uplifting the land surface, and the water is sort of always being given a steep course to follow. It doesn't matter if the river's big or not. On top of that, Patagonia, it's in the south, but it's at, it's at high latitude. It's in a place that would have been covered in ice, just like British Columbia would have been covered in ice. So you have this like double whammy of rivers that probably are trying to sort their courses back out. The Stikine's a good example of that. You can tell pretty clearly that it is adjusting itself to a new course now that the land surface isn't covered with ice anymore and it's got tectonic uplift underneath it so it is possible to sustain gradient in a high volume river like the the sangpo is probably the best example of that you know I mean? it's like absolutely huge river that's incredibly massively steep it has vertical waterfalls and stuff like that in it and it probably has a, a discharge volume like you know, the upper Ohio river or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a feature of an actively growing mountain range that can exist only in a setting like that for like, for reasons of physics, basically. I mean, there, there ain't anything you can do in the Southeast to make high volume white water. You, you know, like they've done in Columbus. I mean, they've kind of neck the neck, the Chattahoochee down there and you get like one little one rapid that has high volume and some features in it. But it it just doesn't exist. It can't happen. So when you've, when you've you never been clearly never been to ASCII. Was <laughs> I, I I I haven't, but I, I was always more of a more of a Charlotte Whitewater man. But John Grace made fun of me for going there and told me I was never allowed to go again. I was very impressionable at the time, and I believed him. So that, but you know, one one thing you see in features like that, you always wonder like why can't they make like a waterfall in a whitewater course? It it would probably beat the hell out of concrete honestly um concrete no. engineers was that oh i'm sorry go ahead well, I, don't I, was wanna, say, like, I don't want to talk over you as i've no, been criticized of doing 
water water is water's pretty strong um it it eats up rock pretty efficiently and trying to you know engineer a feature that's going to withstand the stresses that bedrock would withstand and not get eaten up and broken apart like bedrock would in a natural setting is pretty tough right so so you're talking about this energy input like let's use the zucchini as an example without the energy pushing the mountains up yep would the zucchini just turn flat water for a short, short period of time um essentially yeah i mean um the rock in it you know again having not been there i looked at i looked at a lot of pictures of it to try to study up for this and sound and sound like i knew what was going on um the the appearance of the stream banks in, in pictures um and what little bit i can i can end up reading about online just in terms of what types of rock are there it's not particularly hard stuff um it's not rock that's going to sustain these vertical cliff walls and, and, and channel steepness over time again without that, that constant input. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it would turn into a river with a gradient more appropriate for that rock and for the volume of water than it so carries. It would basically, so basically the mountains are growing as fast as that thing can erode. Um, in, in that case, it would, it would be interesting to know how fast the mountains are growing relative to how much of that has to do with its course being arranged, rearranged by glaciation. But, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's changing its stream bed really fast. Like if you could, if you could look at these stikine 2000 years ago, I bet you would see features in it that look pretty different than they do today. And that is, that is zero time from an, an earth process standpoint. Likewise, if we could look at it 10,000 years from now, uh, assuming there isn't another glaciation or something, it's going to look really, 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 really different than it so does we would, today. You could already we see that looking at looking at the pictures from like the early pioneers of the Stikine. You know, there's mm -hmm. tons of rapids there that look way different than they do now. Just yeah, just over my experience from the first time to the yeah. last time, there was a huge difference. Yeah. So that I mean, that's what you're going to see in giant volume and really soft rock. It is a very temporary feature in the landscape and it's actually showing you what 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 white water represents white water represents rivers that are trying to change the landscape they flow over to be in better adjustment with the path to the ocean or what everything else around it looks like or whatever i mean that like white water is by definition change and when you can actually see that happen there that's that's pretty cool that it goes that fast if you went back in time like 200 years and ran the green, would it be recognizable <laughs> as it is today? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, unless, you know, I, that, that's a good question. I've often wondered about that. I would, I would say so. Um, the only, you know, the differences might be maybe, maybe there were, you know, smaller rocks like stuffed, stuffed into some void or city of an indirection flow elsewhere with a go left log i don't know i mean how long has that thing been in there stuff like that but but no it would absolutely be it would absolutely be quite recognizable and i i think in the in 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 the lower 48 specifically in the southeast um i think the only places you could go where something would look like really different would would be in the appalachian plateau it would be in west virginia uh and Things you've seen like the 
the stream that flows into the new river where the the drives the drives play wave is is laurel creek or something like that you know it it had noticeable changes to its bedrock stream bed in in one big thunderstorm and flash flood several years back right um that's just a product of the rock type the stuff you see in in the southeast even on the escarpment where we have sort of the steepest rowdiest albeit low volume white water that we have I bet those things have looked the same for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and maybe even thousands of years. Super interesting stuff, Phil. This is really yeah, good. Seriously. Um, before we uh, move into a little bit of canoeing talk, uh, because I want to talk uh, a little bit about canoeing, um, give us your hot spot. Give us the geological perspective of where <laughs> you think the undiscovered gems are from your just gut. Yeah, well, you're going you're gonna to have to define gem. That's that's the problem. You're gonna have to say what you want. I mean, you know, if you, you want to define like, it, where you want to go on a paddling trip, you're a class well, five paddler. That so you you know I you and 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 I've 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 warned you about this. You know, I'm gonna say is somewhere in the Caribbean has interesting white water that hasn't been messed with. The reason I say that is that the islands in in the northern Caribbean. So we're called the Greater Antilles. Uh, Hispaniola that has Haiti and the Dominican Republic, uh, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, uh, southernmost Cuba. Shit, those. Me. Uh, yes, correct, correct. Okay. Actually, I, I believe only one of those was specifically singled out, but well, they, I'm sure that they would all be lumped into. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> cor- correct. We we now have a new name for that region. So so Greater Antilles is no longer in play. Shit, hope. Uh, <laughs> Is, is what we'll call it now. Um, yeah, yeah Shitholia has a, it has a very interesting characteristic in that those islands, uh, they are not volcanic. They're related to rock uplift. They're essentially like something like the San Bernardino Mountains in California that just sticks up out of the ocean. So if you were to go up a river in eastern Jamaica, and look at the rock in it, it would look like you're in western North Carolina. These beautiful granite gorges. Uh, if it's not granite, it's some other very hard metamorphic rock. Just awesome rock. I mean, just beautiful stuff, but it's on this tropical island. You're like two or three miles from the ocean. You could run these things to the ocean. And they're, they're very small rivers, but because the precipitation over the long term has been so heavy there, they're pretty big channels. And there's active rock uplift. There's act- active energy input there. So you get like, they're just really unique looking. I've cruised around, looked at a few of them in, in Jamaica in particular, but it, it's a place that has precipitation. So there's the potential for water volume. There's the energy input to give you the steepness. And I mean, that gives that gives you gradient, the right amount of water and the, and the rock quality is good too. So I, I firmly believe that the Swift River and the Spanish River in Jamaica would be totally awesome to run uh, in sort of in their entirety, it, it run as much of them as you, you possibly could. And I, I would not be surprised if, and this is this is a real gasp moment here, if you could go to the the southern peninsula of Haiti, uh, to, to Makaya National Park in Haiti, and find a cool run or two there as well. And the reason I think they're like hidden is they just kind of hide in plain sight. You know, nobody's ever really messed around there. Um, of course, if you want, you know, some kind of overnighter on the coolest stuff you've ever seen, 
you're going to have to go to a large area on on a large continent that's going to have the energy input. So you've got somewhere like in Central Asia or something like that, you know, west of, of the Himalayas where you still have rock uplift and, and the potential for enough volume. Um, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. question. I mean, it, it depends on what you want to see, I guess. But, but to me, and included in, in the Caribbean is the Santa Marta Range in northern Colombia. If you look at a map of Colombia, it has this big triangle of mountains. The high peak in that's like 17,000 feet or something ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's a completely outrageously steep block of mountains. And it, you know, it's very obvious because it has this sort of perfect triangular shape. There's definitely really awesome stuff that comes out of there. And, and that's, that's not part of the Andes. That's part of the Caribbean system. So, so I include that in my argument. There. So, on the contrary to that, what's the worst quality whitewater in the United States? The, uh, Where do you oh, not want to live? I mean, outside of like, you know, the Mississippi <laughs> Delta for whitewater, you know, where, where's the worst, <laughs> oh, mankiest, God. jankiest? Where are the shitholes, if you will? <laughs> well, you can, you can find beauty anywhere. That's, you can, oh, look, you know, see, he doesn't, he doesn't like that. He wanted a polarizing statement from um, <laughs> No, I, I mean, in, you know, in, the, in the, the Midwest would be an example. I mean, like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of places east of the Rockies, like, like Kansas, a lot of Kansas is covered in in sediment debris that was shed off the eroding Rockies. That's what they pump water out of. You ever hear about the, the Oglala Aquifer that, that runs agriculture in, in Canada and Nebraska and places like that? That is water that comes out of these thick accumulations of sediment that were eroded off the Rockies. It's not even really sedimentary rock per se. I mean, it's it's unconsolidated stuff. And it's not going to support gradient. Um, it's sort of impossible to get much in the way of rapids there. The one exception to that is the fact that the whole Mississippi Basin, I mean, half of that was covered by an ice sheet pretty recently. So you do get places like, uh, I mean, throughout Iowa, the Dakotas, you, you get these kind of random, completely unexpected waterfalls or big drops and big volume rivers, but that's like the only thing around, you know? Um, so yeah, the, the mid, the Midwest is not the best place to find, to find white water. So but, Buena Vista is what you're saying. I'm out of the loop. It takes me a minute to yeah. figure out. It was, it was a bit of a dog whistle there, yeah. but I got it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Basically everything from BV all the way through to the Mississippi. That that's just horrible. You're, you're, horrible. You're going to have your work cut out for you there. Yeah, okay. You're going to have your work cut out for you now. That that said, like west of the Mississippi, there's there's water to run in northern Arkansas and even eastern Oklahoma in the in the Ozarks and Wachita's there. There's you know there's there's white water. Um, it's plateau style sandstone boulders stuff like that. But it's it's there. There's not there's not going to be a lot of it again because the the energy the energy input is is just not there in that part of of the continent it's not even there in the sense that we have it on the east coast and and i'll say that like nobody nobody even really knows exactly what it is on on the east coast that that has kind of given a shot in the arm to the landscape and and allowed it to produce the white water we see but but eric jackson is that's possible that's possible (laughs) that's 
<laughs> That's, I might write that into a scholarly paper, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Phil, I was telling it. Hold on for a second. Okay. I can okay. I can talk about this for hours. By the way, can we but, just have this go on for another two hours? I mean, we're <laughs> I was we're years ago, uh, and I couldn't help but think it reminded me exactly like paddling in West Virginia. Where, where is this again, John? In John Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it was like great quality whitewater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, Newfoundland, you're pretty close to the ocean. There's elevated landscape there, so you got you got gradient. That's just a continuation of the Appalachian, so there's good rock there. And, you know, you talk about a place that got messed up by being covered in ice, that, that certainly falls into, into that category. So it's got all the ingredients, you know, to have good whitewater, as as does all of all of Canada. Um was I mean it was it like West Virginia bouldery style? Is that what you mean it, by? It felt like I was running rivers in West Virginia. I mean, it really yeah. did feel very similar. Yeah, that's the, the minus stuff. the trailers and the right, right. dogs <laughs> eating used diapers and whatnot. Yes, I mean, was... bad water quality. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. West Virginia wasn't West covered Virginia. in ice sheets, but it it is the reason there's so much white water in the upper Ohio basin there is that the Ohio River, as you see it today, is like two million years old, which ain't very old. The Ohio sheets that covered North America and everything that flowed into the or flows into the Ohio now is taking in some respect a different path to the ocean than it used to. So, so that's why West Virginia is steep. And on top of that, it's got good sandstone to hold it up. Um, what you'd see in Newfoundland, you know, would have a different reason for steepness, but it's very possible for the rock up there to be about the same. And if you were, you know, being in the maritime provinces there, that's a little bit different climatically than what's, what's in the middle of Canada. So that's, that's a reasonable connection to make for sure. Well, Phil, this has been an incredible interview. Always value bombs. The, the I'm sure all the hammerheads, hammerheads is, <laughs> I'm sure all the hammerheads out there are stoked. Um, we don't have time to get into canoeing, so we're going to have to have you back on the show. Good. Really well, you bring canoeing. you bring me back, and I'll I'll prepare my remarks. But that, it may it may be no accident that we just we just talked up all the time here because you're you're. <laughs> You're you're trying to provoke and inflame, John. No, I know it. I know it before you started. Yeah, that's me. Absolutely, yes, exactly. It's it's a pretty rugged one-two combination you're up against here, Phil. We'll we'll get that. Mm. We'll get you back on the show. Big time appreciation for that. Thanks for the time. You're you're yeah, thanks. That was was great. Thank you. It was really neat. All right, take it easy, guys. See you, Phil. Yeah. There you have it, Phil Prince. Wow. We are, uh, yeah. where are we at that was here? Great. That was super interesting. Yeah, I could listen to that all day. Yeah, I knew. I had like another 15 questions stacked up. Yeah, we'll have to bring <laughs> Phil back on because he's got some really good perspectives, not only on geology and whitewater and whatnot, but he is whitewater canoeing. It's a niche of a niche of a niche, but it is a passionate audience and it will make for a good show, I promise. Um, well, we are way over our time limit, guys. I don't know what happened Excuse here on episode two but we're we're way over the, the time <laughs> limit let's get uh let's get into some rants and raves would anybody like to lead us off i have a i have a i have a i think it's a rave i think it's a rave okay i have a rave as well yeah let's hear, let's hear yours 
Okay. My rave is about Norian Newman's comment about people, about America, catching Eddie's like an American. Okay. And that really, that was like a pee under the mattress. That, for months, has been, that idea has been rolling around in my head. And I have, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I have to say, she is 100% correct. Now, I'm going to lay it out right now for all you intermediate and beginner paddlers out there. Maybe some advanced paddlers ever thought about this before. Uh, and here's the story. You ready? And if you've ever taken a kayak class from me, you know you've heard it before. Right? So you're coming into an eddy. The angle at which you approach the eddy, the more downstream angle you have as you approach the eddy, the wider arc you're going to describe into that eddy. Right? The more perpendicular you are to the eddy line, the tighter the turn you're going to describe on the eddy line. Right? Okay. Now, there's a vector involved here. It's not just a boat angle. You have to be propelling yourself forward. But you describe a wider trajectory if you approach the eddy line with more downstream angle. Most, many, many, many boaters I see on the river, whether through poor aim or just miscalculation or not really thinking about it, catch eddies, no matter how big they are, with like a very perpendicular approach angle to the eddy line. As a result, they turn, you know, the back end of their boat sticking out in the current like an open sail. It pivots around very quickly, and they turn right on the eddy line and do a very labored forward stroke right on the eddy line to pull themselves up in the eddy. Whereas someone who's done some slalom work will have a much more relaxed paddle plant behind the rock in the still water because they have a better trajectory going into the into the still water behind the rock. And the, and the same thing happens on a peel-out. more upstream angle, angle you have leaving an eddy, the closer that angle's to approach as a ferry angle, the wider arc you're going to do out in the river, and then the more perpendicular you are to the current as you leave the eddy, the tighter the turn you're going to describe. But uh, those two simple trajectories are lost on many, many non-technical, technically-minded paddlers, and it's worth thinking about. And, Lewis, I see you shaking your head, but you have nothing to say about this that, that could could dispel this. I'm going to... No, I'm just, I, I just think the last piece to throw into that equation is like the strength of the eddy, right? Like if it's like a really mushy oh, eddy with a weak eddy line, you want to kind of ferry into it. And if it's a super, super strong eddy, you want to come in real, you know, cross the eddy line, point it pretty downstream with like with authority, you know? Well, there's a lot of variables in there, but that's a general idea. And, and But the thing is, is most, a lot of palaces in the river have one style of eddy turn. It's right on the eddy line every single time. What I took from, interfering to eddies no matter what they do. What I took from Noria's comment was that most Americans don't know how to do a draw stroke properly. Well, you know, the thing is, when you go into an eddy turn, you, you go into an eddy turn, right? Uh, your paddle plant can take a, a completely neutral, relaxed paddle plant if it's a big eddy and it's just really dead water. Or you do two modifying strokes going into an eddy. You can, you can widen the arc of your eddy turn. By doing a stern draw as you enter the eddy, right? Like if you're doing an S turn out of the eddy, you're doing a stern draw instead of a relaxed paddle plant. If you need to tighten the arc coming into an eddy, you do a dufex stroke, yeah. right? Which is essentially a bow draw. Yeah. And I'll back your argument up on that without getting yeah. into a lot of particulars. That if you do that quick little whip into the eddy, you're going to end up on the eddy line. You're not going to get your boat fully in the eddy, and you're going to be in that weird transition current. Which is not where you want to be. The that's harder right. you get into whitewater, so that's right. You're gonna be drifting over stuff backwards sooner or later. All right. Well, I'm gonna jump in. I want to rave about Big Baller Brand. <laughs> what? 
Have you guys ever heard of Big Baller Brand and LeVar Ball and, you know, his Are, are they giving you money? No. Is this something <laughs> you? No, no, no. You ben, just get better back I, dog poop on the trail. That I have heard of it. I wish that I had never heard of it. And... Hey, just bear with me for just a second, Lewis. I get, it, right. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'll convince you. I know what middle, talking about. I'll convince you that the Middle Kings is not manky, and I will convince you that Big Baller Brand is a good thing. So, have you heard about their JBL, their Junior Basketball League? Okay, so this is what my rave is about. It's really about the JBL, not Big Baller Brand, but Big Baller Brand's putting on the JBL. So basically, let's say you're a high school kid and you are a basketball player and you want to be a professional basketball player. Okay, the course that you do now is you go to college, even if you're like the man, you're going to go to college for one year and then you're going to be a one and done or something, or you're going to scrap it through three or four years of college and you know, you're, you're going to make it to the NBA for a few years or whatever. That is essentially the national, the NCAA holding every college basketball or college athlete who's in any of the money-making sports like football or basketball totally by the balls it's completely a stranglehold on what they can do so he so big baller brand introduced this jbl league so you can go right out of college now if you're trying to be a pro okay you want to be a pro basketball player and I know there's going to be people who are like, oh, John, you're wrong. You get an education when you go to college and, you know, you do this, blah, blah, blah. But now with the JBL, they have 80 players. They're putting together 10 teams. And you try out for this league. And depending on your skill level, depending on your play time, you can get anywhere from $3,000 to like $10,000 a month right out of high school to be a pro basketball player. What show is this? This is the JBL. It's not a show. Oh. Is this Hammer Factor? That oh, on, my God. Is this... Can you – listen. So all I'm saying is yeah. is they have put this league together to take these athletes and allow them to follow their passion. <laughs> it's, how is this less exploitative than the NCAA? Because they're getting paid. The NCAA is like, oh, uh, well, we'll get – well, <laughs> in the NCAA, they're like, oh, well, you can get an education and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you like, dude, I was a Division One athlete. You're putting in 15 hours a week before you even get into traveling for the year. It's the biggest Ponzi scheme in the world that all I'm these defending, athletes are doing I'm this. I'm not defending the NCAA. This is someone coming say, in. This doesn't sound like an improvement. Disrupting the system. What do you mean? Maybe it's just my, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any idea what either of you guys are talking about. I really don't. Anyway, I'm, ra- I'm <laughs> raving about the JBL, and if, and if I had a, a, a dream trust fund, I would create the Hammer Factor Racing League, and I would take these people who got, like, top three finishers at these events that I decided, and I would give them a scholarship to – simply be a professional kayaker don't have to go out and do your instagram posts you don't have to go out and all the other stuff that you know xyz company wants you to do whatever you've made it into the hammer factor racing league you are now a true professional and you can truly reach your potential who's who's paying for this don't worry about it (laughs) john john hang on you broke lavar ball (laughs) I'm going to act opposite, and I'm going to pay all of those kids in college tuition to stop taking GoPro videos and posting pictures of themselves on the internet. 
I'll be the NCAA of whitewater. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, that's what a kid has to do now. If he wants to go to... Uh, who is Max your marketing guy, Weld? I don't know. Whoever your marketing guy is. <laughs> you know what? They're going to be like, well, I need such uh, no one posts knows. a week, blah, blah, blah. You're doing this, you know, whatever. It's just so... Ah. Anyway, it's a rave and a rant. Big baller league. Huh. Lewis, where you at? Come on. You're just smirking this... at me. We've, we've fought all this year about Mankey Rivers. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start. Uh, I'm going to rant about my shoulder. I, uh, I, I ripped the bicep tendon repair out of my arm uh, like a week ago. So life goes on. I don't have to get it fixed. It's basically like I started off with a tenodesis, and now it's going to be as if I had a tenotomy. But my shoulder hurts. I'm not going to get to go run the shit for like another two months. I miss kayaking really badly. It's raining. It poured rain here last night. It's like 50 degrees. I just I want to go kayaking, man. And I'm it's it's a bummer. It's going to be okay in the end, but it just it sucks right now. That's my rant. It does suck, man. Thinking about that makes me queasy. It's more, more a tale of woe than a rant, but <laughs> anyway, that's all I got. Well, thank you for listening to Hammer Factor Season Two, Episode One. Um, and I think we, uh, I think we did a little better this round <laughs> than our season ender. Yeah, that was a it's real like a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, he, he threw us, he threw the rope there for sure. He, he grabbed that bitch. So <laughs> <laughs> well, big thanks to Phil Prince. Thank you for listening to the Hammer Factor, and uh, we will see you on the river. <laughs>